Welcome to the Bread Boom Podcast. I'm Dan Levy, and alongside me would be the host of this show. We named it after him. He's the Silver Slugger, the All Star, the Golden Glover. He's Brett Boom. What up, Brett? Hi, Dan. What's happening? Brett, I did 20 push ups today. Are you proud of me? Uh, that's 19 more than I thought. But well, it did cause a nosebleed, so I won't try those shenanigans yeah, so again. I'm, I'm really, I'm really impressed. <laughs> what's happening? What we what, got? What's going on with you? Did you do any golf today? Did you do anything fun? I went golf with the troops today. A little charity event. It was nice. Oh, nice. nice. Very cool. Well, home on time. Well, speaking of nice, today's show has a very special guest. An eight-time All-Star, a World Series champ, an NL MVP, Silver Slugger Award winner, and a member of Cooperstown's Finest. Ladies and gentlemen, Chipper Jones. What's up, Chipper? Hello, guys. How are y'all? Hey, Chip, Boney, how you doing? I just want to tell you thank you for coming on and doing this. Uh, I appreciate it. So, how you been, man? My pleasure, bud. Hey, Ben. To you and uh, been a long time. Just uh, playing a little golf and raising some kids and doing my thing here in Atlanta. Very cool. Yeah, and I didn't get a chance to see. You. I haven't seen you in a long time. I saw you at uh, when Edgar got inducted, and that was your induction. Is that in your induction? I'm getting them all running together. No, but I saw you in the crowd, and, and the thinking, oh, I haven't. I haven't seen Chip for a while, but. Uh, yeah, thank you for coming on, and, and uh, you know, it would be a good chance for us to catch up. We'll start it off with, you know, I, I've been doing I've been doing this podcast a little bit on this side of the mic. I know you recently jumped on this side of the mic. We'll talk about that later. But I, I've talked to, to Lark came on, Barry Larkin and, and Baggy. And, you know, when I was talking to those guys, your name came up, and I said it's, it's kind of in the modern-day era. It's kind of Larkin, Gwynn, Bagwell, Ripken, and Chipper. The guys that the guys that came up with an organization and played their entire career. And and you see the game today. That's not happening too much. Tell me how important was that to you in Atlanta as uh, being that guy that that signed with a team, number one pick overall, and then play his whole career. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was important for me. Um, I'm a Southern kid. I grew up, you know, in Florida going to, you know, maybe once every other year, maybe go to travel up to Fulton County Stadium and, and watch the Braves play. Obviously, living in the South, TBS, watching the Braves play every night. Um, you know, I, the Braves, while they weren't my favorite team growing up, it was my link to be able to watch Major League Baseball. And, um, you know, my dad being a baseball coach, a high school baseball coach, a college baseball coach, and me following four or five feet behind him wherever he went, as as you can well relate, um, you wanted to be doing everything Pops was doing. And baseball was, you know, our life. And it didn't take me long to figure out that, that playing baseball at its highest level was something that was intriguing to me. And uh, I told my mom, you know, at four years old, I grew up a Dodger fan. Um, I hate them now, but I, you know, I, I, I grew <laughs> up a Dodger fan and, and really uh, yeah, at four or five years old on 
that Saturday game of the week with Joe Garagiola, Tony Kubek, you know, uh, I can remember a Dodgers-Reds game at Riverfront Stadium uh, watching it four or five years old, and I turned around to my mom, and I was like, that's what I want to do, you know, when I grow up. And uh, I've been working towards that, that goal ever since. Yeah, and it, it, it was, you know, I remember uh, you're a little bit younger than me. You came out and you kind of you were injured in 94, but 95 is when you really came on the scene in Atlanta. I was playing with the Reds at the time. And I remember this young kid with a real, real confidence. You had something about you. And I remember being in that Reds dugout because we played against you and you eliminated us in 95 from the playoffs. And I remember just the talk mm-hmm. of our team with this young kid in the middle of the lineup and that Atlanta team at the time, that was a stacked lineup. And, and this Chipper Jones kids coming along and Bobby Cox just said, we're just going to throw this kid right the three hole in the middle of it. You guys end up winning the world series that year, 95. Mm-hmm. And I just remember watching you and going, you know, this this kid right here, he's just kind of beyond his years uh, maturation-wise. I mean, you just – you look like you'd been there your whole life. And, and this is your first year in the big leagues, and all of a sudden you're three-hole Braves, and that's back, you know, when the Braves – that was the heyday of the Braves in the 90s. And uh, that was something mm-hmm. I've always really looked. You had an ability, and we got to play together later in my career, but you had that uncanny ability that, like I hadn't seen in too many teammates I've had my entire career was to slow the game down. You had that look. It's, it's like mm-hmm. the bigger the stage, you had that ability to slow it down and kind of breathe when everybody else, their, their adrenaline gets going. You had that uncanny ability to do it. And there's only been a few teammates I've ever played with that had that. How was that in, in coming up as a rookie and being in the middle of all that? Well, I can, I can promise you, you, you ever heard the saying, uh, a, a duck swimming in water? You know, they look graceful above water, but below the water, the the, yeah. the, the legs are, are moving really, really fast. That, that was kind of like me. The, the fact of the matter is, is um, having a, a baseball man as a father coming up through, you know, Little League and Babe Ruth and American Legion High School, there weren't too many situations that my dad hadn't prepared me for. My dad was a stickler for the fundamentals. He was a stickler for um, old school baseball. And, yeah, so, I mean, when we went out in the backyard and we played these games, it wasn't necessarily just playing the game. It was going through situations. It was um, preparing myself for big-time baseball, for, you know, what might – act as the seventh game of the World Series for me. It might be, you know, a, a, a high school state championship game or a, or a, an American Legion, you know, district championship, something like that. But when you're 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, those are your seventh games of the World Series. You know, they, they, they act as, as though it's the Dodgers and the Braves or the Indians and the Braves or the Reds and the Braves. In the NLCS, 
I had been through all those scenarios so early on in my life that yeah, it really didn't phase me all that much. I think if you can, if you can really tune out the fact that you have millions and millions of people watching you and break it down to just what's happening in between the lines and that the game is not really played any differently, then that that's really kind of breaking it down to a simplest form. And when you do that, the game tends to slow down for you. All right, Braves of the 90s. Went on about 10 years where, you know, it was just kind of a given. Braves go to the postseason every year. Good chance of going to the World Series. You got Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, who were kind of the staples. In my opinion, you know, just just playing with them and playing against them. You know, arguably that could be the best trio ever in the history of the game. Just run me through those 90s teams. And, and you won one World Series. What was that like that decade? I, I, I'll kind of touch on it later. My, you know, my interpretation of the, the brief time I was there with Bobby and and how Bobby set that tone and expected you to do that every year. But you were in a unique situation being in kind of a, you know, a, a franchise that that's what we did. It wasn't a matter of whether we were getting to the postseason. It was winning that World Series. Run me through the, those 90s Braves team and what it was like playing behind. Well, Doggy Smoltz and Glavin instead of having to face him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think you you said one critical word in you know your last uh, uh, little speech. There, it was expectation. It was expected. You know, I mean, and that's what separated us from a lot of the other teams, especially in the National League, was that we took the field expecting to win and you went through that there in 99 you know i mean if you got those guys on the mound and you got a stacked lineup you don't walk out onto the field hoping to win you walk out onto the field expecting to win and if you don't it's almost a shock you know and and i think that's what's kind of separated us especially from some of our division rivals whether it be the the phillies or the uh, uh the mets uh obviously the the Marlins had a couple of good years there from from '97 to 2001, um, but the 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 thing that separated us over a 162 game schedule was the fact that we took the field every single day, expecting to win, no matter the 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 turnover and the roster. Um, as long as you have. You know, Maddox Glavin and Smoltz um, at, at certain points, a Denny Nagel, a Kevin Millwood, a Jason Schmidt. Um, it, it, they were all interchangeable parts, you know, and, and whoever took the mound, we had the utmost confidence that they were going to go out and give us an opportunity to win. And, and as long as the, you know, the offense did their job more times than not, we did win. Yeah, and I remember, uh, you know, I got to play in Atlanta one year, 99. We went to the World Series and, and got our butt kicked. I don't like talking about that too much, but I did get to go. And I remember <laughs> I remember when I got the call and said, you've been traded. And uh, I was traded for Denny Nagel, came over to you guys. And my first thought, and this is serious, my first thought was, I don't have to face those three guys. 
And the second thing I thought is I'm going to get to go to the postseason. I'd been in the postseason with Cincinnati. We're definitely going to the postseason and probably going to go to the World Series. And we and we got to do that. And, and when you talked about Bobby and expecting and you guys, I when I got to that clubhouse, it was immediate. Like I could just tell by talking to you when we first met, you expect like Booney, we go to the postseason here. And it was kind of a, mm-hmm. an assumed thing. And it was kind of cool. Because I had been to the postseason, but I had never had that that bar set that high by so many of the core guys that you had in that clubhouse. And I remember sitting in spring training, and Bobby Bobby came out. You know, every year for for the people listening out there, usually you had, the manager addresses the team at, at the beginning, shows his expectations. And I remember Bobby said to all you new players here, and there was a couple new guys that had come over that year. I being one of them. He said, uh, here in Atlanta, we go out and we kick the crap out of people and we go to the postseason. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a it wasn't an arrogant thing. It was a a, a real confident in what was expected. I thought that was a real cool thing. And we ended up going to that World Series. Like I said, we lost. But uh, the expectation 99 was your MVP year. Uh, And I got to witness Mm -hmm. you kind of especially down the stretch. Uh, you kind of put us on your shoulders and, and it was pretty awesome to watch. Um, and I remember that year, Donnie Baylor, you, you had had a really good relationship with Don Baylor, the, our hitting coach, and you had a routine mm-hmm. and you kind of stuck to it all year. You got to the yard, Chipper's always at the yard early playing cards and he always got his, his stuff done <laughs> and whatever that was. But I remember that year you weren't coming out for BP all the time. Uh, Take us through that 99 year and how special that was. Well, um, to, to, to your first point and you coming over and, you know, Bobby kind of delivering that message, we knew that you coming in, you would fit in perfectly because you're kind of a no nonsense, all business, you know, not really, uh, you know, gonna, gonna, yeah, be flashy. You're gonna. You're kind of one of those blue collar players, and we all were kind of blue collar players. I know we kind of got a. We get hard knocks for being blue collar players nowadays, especially with the flash that's in the game now. But we knew that you were gonna fit in, and obviously, um, hit in the top at the top of the lineup, and and you know, be an important cog. Obviously, a Gold Glover at second base. Um, so we were extremely happy to have you. You made us a better ball club. Um, and, and you're right. Bobby had that, that saying basically every year, you know, I mean, the guys that were there for 10, 12, 15 years, we, we were kind of over the quarter rolling our eyes because we heard it every single year, but it had, (laughs) The, the exact same effect on all the new guys that it had on you in 1999. And, and we knew the message that he was trying to get across. And, um, you know, judging by your reaction to it, it worked. Um, so 99 was a, a very special year for us. Um, obviously, any time you get the chance to play in a World Series, I got a chance to play in three, 95, 96, and 99. I had no idea that 1999 would be my last. Um, and unfortunately, we ran into the 
the juggernaut dynasty of the Yankees there in 99. We had a really ball, good ball club. But, you know, I mean, I think looking back, you could say in certain areas we might have been flawed, you know, in, in a couple areas. If they got into the bullpen, um, haven't gotten past Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz, you know, there was some – there were – was a deficiency here or there that wasn't a deficiency for the Yankees. You know, when you're talking about going up against the, I don't know, the Jeff Nelsons, the Mike Stanton's, the Ramiro Mendoza's, obviously the, the, you know, the closer, uh, Rivera, um, Graham Lloyd, those guys were all, they, they were the first team to really shorten the game to five, six, seven innings if they had the lead after six innings they were virtually unbeatable and uh, unfortunately for us they they got out ahead of us we were we 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 hung tough in a couple games but um they just they just wore us down and um obviously 99 is is a year that i'll never forget it was it was one where you know coming out of the all-star break i was i was tired and um, I had had a you know a pretty good first half, but like you said, you you just click with certain coaches, and I clicked with our hitting coach that year, Don Baylor, um, and he said, "Hey, you know, take it easy from time to time. You don't have to go out for BP every day. Um, I'll vouch for you if if you're not feeling it. You know, take a day because." You know, the, the, the stronger you are physically, the stronger you are mentally. And if you wear it down day after day after day, you know, it's going to take its toll on you. And, yeah, I mean, I, I took some days off from, from BP, and you'd be surprised how many unbelievable games I had just from basically what we call showing and going. You know, I mean, come to the park, get you something to eat, get dressed, go play. You know, don't 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 mess with the pregame stuff. Just just don't think about it and go play and and get your mental work in and get your film work done and on what you need to do to prepare for that nice starter and go kick his rear end. You know, and, and it, it really worked for me and and I was really well well rested coming into the second half of the season and and, and put up a monster second half. Yeah, and, and that's really kind of the first time I saw that, but I, I liked it. And I'm thinking, you know, when you would do your thing, I'd say, well, Chip's, by the way, Chip's having an MVP year. Whatever Chipper needs to do, you let him do it. You know, and I talk to guys all the time about it. I did something similar to that when I went to Seattle in the early 2000s. I had a couple big years, and, and I got off the regular, you know, you know, report to the line to stretch it. X, X time. It's like, no, I had my routine and it was working for me. And, and I think especially mm-hmm. at the big league level, you know, when you're playing at a high level, we're all men there. You know, we do what we got to do. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is bringing it from seven to 10 every night and everything else is just, right. it's a bunch of crap. It's whatever gets you in the mindset to be the best player you can when that national anthem ends. And, and I saw you do it in 99 and I loved it. And, and I thought, this is what Chipper's doing to have the t- – the, if, if he thinks this is the reason he's having this type of year, well, then, damn it, that's, that is the reason he is. And just keep bringing the mail. You well, did. You and won you, the MVP. You, 
you, you, you have to credit Bobby for allowing his players and trusting his players to be able to know what's best for them. And I think that's the hallmark of what makes a good manager a good manager is knowing when to pat a guy on the back and say, I trust you. You do what you have to do to get ready. And then sticking a foot up somebody's rear end when it needs to be done, which obviously needs to be done, you know, from, from time to time. We, we've all seen it. I, you know, Bobby did it with Andrew Jones. I think that might have been the year he pulled him off the field in the middle of the game. Were you there when that happened? For the, for the, for the basket catch? Well, he, he let a ball drop in front of him in which Bobby thought he was kind of loafing and he, and he sent, he sent uh, Gerald Williams out there in the middle of the inning and, and brought Andrew in. But it's just those kind of things where Bobby gave me the grace to say, okay, I trust you as a, a professional to get ready to play each and every night. I trust you know what you need to do to get yourself ready. But then he would also stick his foot, you know, in your rear end if he thought you weren't doing the job up to his specifications and he did that with Andrew a time or two heck he called me into the principal's office a time or two if he thought you know something wasn't quite right so um that's what that's what separated Bobby from from all the rest and made him such a great uh players manager he was and and Bobby that year oh I remember he would he would push my buttons and 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 I'd have talk after talk with him and you know, you only you only realize that usually a few years after, like what he was trying to get out of you. And I and I went through that with a few managers, and and I realized as I got older as a player and got some more experience that oh, that's why he did it. And, and I love the when you say some guy. Sometimes you got to go give them a hug, and sometimes you got to stick your their foot your foot in their butt to get the same result. And and you got to pick and choose. It's a personality thing. It's reading people. You know, some guy needs a hug. Mm-hmm. The other guy needs it to get kicked in the butt to get the same result. I agree with you. I think Bobby was was really good like that. And and there's a reason that he's Bobby Cox and and a Hall of Fame manager. Um, when I was preparing for this, I, I was just kind of going over some numbers and stuff. And, and you know, I think with today's game, and, and it's changed. I mean, it's changed. I've been out of the game now 12 years, you, you, you less than me. But in our generation, it, it was a big deal when you hit 300. I mean, I know that 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 you know, I only did it a few times in my career. But I'll tell you, that's that's an accomplishment. Today, I see him not really given that the credence I think it deserves. And, and, you know, the game's changed a little bit. There's a lot of analytics. There's, there's a lot of on base percentage talk, but I looked at your career and you finished at three Oh two. And, and, you know, I, I, after I played with you in 99, I went on to, to Seattle and played with another great, great hitter, Edgar Martinez. And I think the guys that, that, at the end of their career can look back and go, I was a career 300 hitter. There's not too many of you. And, and I really think it's a lost thing in today's stats, how, how tough it is not only to hit 300 in the big leagues, but to do it for a career. There's not too many guys do it. I don't think it gets the credit it deserves in today's game. 
what's your thoughts on that? Uh, well, it's a private factor thing. It was certainly a private factor thing for me. The only thing I wanted to be known as when I played was a 300 hitter. I didn't want to strike out. Um, I took pride in more walks than strikeouts. It was a slap in the face to walk back to, to the dugout knowing that I got dominated by a pitcher and him striking me out. And this is coming from a guy who is the all-time franchise leader <laughs> for the Atlanta Braves in strikeouts. Uh, so I did it quite a bit, but I never struck out 100 times in a season. I took great pride in that. Uh, there's there just so many good things that can happen from putting the ball in play. And I know, you know, like you said, it's, it, you know, the game is such that it's all about strikeouts and home runs right now. And that's okay. It doesn't sit well with the, with the old schoolers, such as myself. I feel like when I walked to the plate, I wanted to be the toughest out possible. And striking out was, was not an option. I, you know, I would much rather, you know, tax a guy and put him through a nine or two, 10 pitch at bat and ground out the shortstop than strike out on three or four pitches and get overmatched. I would feel better about, you know, uh, working the guy a little harder, putting the ball in play, maybe getting on on an error or a ball sneaking through on four or five hops through the infield. You know what I mean? It was just That's just a mentality that, you know, guys from the – 80s, 90s, early 2000s, that, that's just the way we were made, you know, and it's not that way anymore, you know, and, and it's something that, that us old schoolers have to have to come to grips with because the bottom line is general managers, most general managers these days, they're not old school general managers. They're new school. They're analytics driven. They're, they're you know, wanting – guys who are cheap. They're one guys who are very good for shorter periods of time um, so that they don't have to pay them. And if they can hit the ball out of the ballpark, they don't care if they strike out 200 times. As long as they hit the ball out of the ballpark and, and produce instant offense, uh, they're happy with it. Um, so it's not the way I would run a club, but the fact of the matter is, is you can't argue with, you know, the, the last few World Series champions, whether it's the Dodgers this year, or the Astros of years past, or, you know, the, the, the Red Sox and whatnot, they've, they've gotten it done by hitting the ball into the gaps and out of the ballpark. And they've done it by striking out, you know, not a whole heck of a lot of time. So constructing those, uh, you know, World Series teams uh, the past, you know, three or four years has been uh, really brilliant by by the general managers of, of this day and age. Switch hitting. You know, the layman approach to that or, or somebody that's not a switch hitter, I think my first thought is, wow, I've never got a breaking ball breaking away from me. That would be great. Then you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but now I got now I got two swings. My my swing's a big is you know big enough pain in the ass to work on one swing. All of a sudden you got two. 
Tell me what it's like to be a switch hitter. Uh, completely natural to me. I mean, I've been doing it since I was seven years old. So, I mean, it's, it's just been baseball to me. Um, the fact of the matter is, is you have to get both swings on par with each other. And I can remember my first, uh, hitting instructor with the Braves in 1990, I had two unbelievable roving hitting instructors. I had Frank Howard. And I had Willie Stargell. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> having those two brains to pick through the minor league process with the Atlanta Braves? I mean, I, I you know, and here's the thing. So both imparted two different philosophies for me. For, for um, Frank Howard, it was more uh, concentrate on the switch hitting. I need you to take twice as many swings from your weak side as you do your strong side every single day in the minor leagues. And with Willie, it was more like, I'm going to get you to swing the heaviest bat possible that you can get around on 95 miles an hour. Okay. And once we find that sweet spot, you're going to hit 30 homers, you know, and he just had that kind of aggressive type of, of outlook on, on how I was going to progress and having the two of them in my ear, every spring training coming up through the minors, man, how, how can a guy not be successful with those two guys, you know, just singing in your ear day after day. So, um, extremely lucky. I know you had a bunch of great instruction, you know, coming up with the reds. I mean, you had to have you know, just a, a plethora of guys, you know, Hall of Famers and, and big Red Machine members that were around that were, you know, kind of showing you the lay of the land and telling you how it was going to be. And, you know, I mean, growing up in, in this organization, not only you have Frank Howard and, and Willie Stargell, but you got, you got stinking Dale Murphy and Hank Aaron and, you know, I mean, all kinds of guys hanging around spring training that you're just like, Oh my goodness. I mean, you'd be stupid not to sponge off of these guys. I know you feel the same way. Yeah. And I think, you know, too, in today, you know, I see the organizations nowadays that really do a good job with honoring their history. You know, the Yankees come to mind probably as the best, but I think it's such, it's set such a tone with having, you know, greats of the past, leaning on the cage, just being around, just that, I don't know, it, it sets kind of a tone. It, it kind of blends the, the past with the, with, the, with the present and the future. And, and I, I really think all franchises, all organizations should do more of that and, and recognize the players that did it before them, have them mingle with the current players. Because, I, you know, I was a, growing up in a baseball family and, and having a grandpa that, played in the fifties and, and telling all his stories, you know, he's all, Oh, you guys today, you know, you couldn't play with us back then. You know how grumpy old men get. And I remember telling Gramps, I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to be that guy. I think it's, it's really important to take lessons from the guys that played before you, because there's a lot of great, there's a lot of stuff you and myself from our generation can learn from the generation 
before us. And there's also stuff today, you know, some of the things we don't like in the modern game, but there's stuff we can learn from the kids today too. And I think you, you blend the past with the, with the present. And I think you come up with the ultimate, uh, combination. And I think, you know, that's cool when you speak to Stargell and you, and you speak to uh, Frank Howard. Wow. Frank Howard. He's the biggest man in the world, except for before Richie Sexton came along. <laughs> that's true. But you, you bring up a good point. You know, I, I can sit here objectively and talk with my dad over dinner uh, a couple of times a week. And I say, you know, um, how can you compare my era to Hank Aaron or not, not Hank Aaron, but Babe Ruth, All right? Babe Ruth would have get gotten eaten up, you know, in our era of baseball. There, there, <laughs> Without there, a doubt. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. In his era, he was the man. Okay. But Hank Aaron would have gotten eaten up just as, just as, you and I probably now with everybody throwing a hundred plus would have gotten eaten up at certain points by players of this era. Listen, as, as we go along, you know, players are going to get bigger, faster, stronger. They're going to um, throw harder. They're going to have, uh, more velo off the bat, you know? I mean, it, it, it's, it's tougher. Like, the days of, oh, let's see, uh, Mike Morgan coming out of the bullpen and throwing, <laughs> you know, 89, 91-mile-an-hour sinkers. And stuff. Those days are over, bro. You know, I mean, the, the, you don't see those anymore. Everybody that comes out of these bullpens is throwing 97 to 100 with 92-mile-an-hour sliders. Now, imagine if we're in, you know, the playoffs in, you know, 1990, what year would we be, y'all, 95? <laughs> yeah, you, you beat was us it, in 95. It, it 95. <laughs> yeah, so there's no, there's no Xavier Hernandez coming out of the bullpen. There's no, you know, Mike Stanton. I mean, these guys, these guys are throwing 97 to a hundred from both sides of the plate. And they're I, this year. How many guys did you see come out of bullpens that made their major league debuts in the playoffs, in the playoffs, you know what I mean? It, and it's because they can throw a hundred miles an hour and get swings and misses. And that's what the game has come to nowadays. I'll tell you, you walk through that Yankee locker room right now. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's, you know, before CC retired, he wasn't even the biggest guy on the team. And CC's one of the biggest men I've ever been around. I mean, you got <laughs> these, the kids are just getting bigger. Like you said, bigger, stronger, faster, and you can only compare people. You can't compare generations. You compare, I think you grade people by who was the best in their generation against their peers, you know, bringing up the Babe Ruth thing. Of course, there's no way Babe's going to the plate with that swing. You ever see one of those swings on the old archive footage? That ain't working in today's game. Yeah, with a a 40-ounce bat, trust me, he ain't getting it right on 120. 
<laughs> right. And in, and in 50 or, you know, 30 years from now, if, you know, God willing, we're still around, we're going to be watching. We're going to be watching guys going, wow. You know, <laughs> this is ridiculous. It's human development. These kids today are training year round. They start training when they're 17 years old. You know, I, I, I worked for the A's a few years ago as a, as a uh, special assistant. And I, I mean, they're just coming out. They're just these kids are monsters. And I was never the tallest guy, but I've never felt as small now when I'm around these current big leaguers. Everybody's huge. So I, I, I think the game's just, yep. you know, it's it's human development and, and it's going to get better. And it's good for the game to just get better and better and better. All right. You named uh, your son Shay, I hear. I think I have an idea why, but tell the audience <laughs> why that name came up. Well, I was, uh, okay, so Shay is my third oldest. He just turned 16 last month. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously, Shea Stadium is, you know, I hold it near and dear to my heart. And it's not a a troll job on uh, uh, Mets fans whatsoever. Um, I, to be honest with you, before... Um, you know, I ever had the, the falling out with the Mets and the Mets fans. Um, we played against a guy named Shay Hillenbrand, played with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And I was like, yep. man, that's a pretty, that's a really cool name. And it just made sense from a simple standpoint. Okay. I hit my first major league home run in 1995 uh, in, in Shea Stadium. I love that ballpark. I loved hitting it. And, no matter whether we had a boy or a girl, Shea would work, you know? And everybody always says it's a great troll job on the on the New York mess, but it, quite honestly, there was never any ill intent or me throwing it in the face of, of Mets fans to, to name my kid Shea. I just I absolutely love the, the name. And to be honest with you, he is – could not be happier with his name. You know, most kids don't like their name, but I we can get out of a car or a cab in downtown New York, and if people recognize me, they will immediately ask me, is that Shay? Is that Shay? So Shay in the biggest city in North America is probably as well known, you know, as anybody just because – I gave him that name and um, it, it was, it's, it's a special place who always hold a special place in my heart. You know, you, you always have that one stadium where, you know, it doesn't matter if Roger Clements or Brandy Johnson or Walter Johnson or Sandy Koufax is on the mound. If, if they throw it over the plate in that stadium, you're going to whack it somewhere. And Chase stadium was that stadium for me. And that's cool for him, too, because when they ask Shea, hey, why'd your dad name you Shea? Oh, well, because he loved the name. And then kind of on the side, he could say, plus he raked there. I like that. That's what, <laughs> that's what my kid would do. All right. Exactly right. I've, I've, I've done this to a lot of the guests that have come on, and uh, I want to get your reaction to it. You grow up with the Braves, have a Hall of Fame career, but you're never a Hall of Famer until you get that phone call. And – 
you know, I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. leading up to it, when, when you were eligible to be inducted, I'm sure you had a pretty good inkling. There's a pretty good chance. But, you know, I talked to Andre Reed about it. I talked to Lark about it for a while. Did you did Chipper have that Hall of Fame moment where it it yeah I'm probably you know all my buddies are telling me the numbers are there, uh, but was there that moment where it really seeped in that wow I just got the call this since I, like you said since you were two or three years old this is all you wanted to do and and now it's real you just got that phone call did you have that moment? Oh, yeah, I think every guy has that moment. You know, I didn't really let myself think about it that much uh, leading up to it because, you know, quite honestly, it's it's out of your control. You don't really – things that are out of your control, I'm, I, I'm not going to spend a, a, a lot of brain power worrying about it, to be honest with you. Um, I knew that there were 400 people on this planet that, you know – whether or not I make it into the the Hall of Fame, it's it's on them. It's not on me. I put the the best resume that I could out there, and if it's good enough, man, great. If it's not, I'm okay with it. You know. So, um, but the fact to 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 sit back and and watch how it all unfolded and my wife will tell you, you know, we never really talked about it until maybe Christmas time. I think, uh, I got, I got the call January 20th and, and we maybe had a conversation about it right around Christmas, New Year's. I mean, other than that, yeah, it wasn't really talked about. Um, a lot of people, you know, all my buddies were saying, Hey man, congratulations. You're going into the hall of fame, but until you, you know, get that call and they say, buddy, you got 97% of the votes, you know, amongst 400 plus voters. I mean, that's, 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 I mean, I can't even explain to you what that means to me. You know I mean? It's 23 years in pro ball. It's 19 years in the big leagues. It's, you know, uh, being a part of 14 division championships. It's it's riding the coattails of the big three, Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz. Not only that, Bobby Cox and John Scherholtz in the managerial post and the, in the front office. I mean, it's a lot of people that go into um, me – garnering this position so um and and not to mention the the teammates you know such as yourself that that hit in front of me and hit behind me and helped me do all the things that I was able to do so it's a lot bigger than me you know and I never wanted to make it just about me this is about my hometown of Pearson Florida this is about where I went to high school in Jacksonville for three years where I boarded um, this is, you know, a whole bunch of people in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, and, and the Braves organization. And I want it to be about, uh, you know, I want it to be a celebration of all of us getting to this point. It's not just, not just me. So yeah, it was, it was a lot bigger than me going into Cooperstown, you know, in 2018. And, and, uh, I'm extremely happy to share with everyone. All right. Uh, field to the booth. How do you, how's that transition? What's it, what's it been like? 
You enjoying yourself? Man, it's tough. Uh, it, it, it's tough. <laughs> this side of the mic's um, tough. We, <laughs> we we couldn't we couldn't be on site this year, so we we did the remote satellites, the remote feeds from our houses, and quite frankly, you know, the two man crews, whether it was myself and Boob Shiambi, was pretty cool because it was a conversation between two people but whenever it was me boog and sut or me rabbits and uh uh eduardo perez you know three people you know stuff tends to get a little jumbled you know i mean there's there are delays and and obviously uh we're all watching on our own separate monitors so yeah it was tough i mean i would like to give it an opportunity to be on site, um, to be able to talk to the managers face to face, to be able to talk to the players face to face, kind of get that insight that you need as an analyst and a broadcaster, um, to be able to relay it to the, to the millions that are watching you, you know, that night. Um, that's very important to me. I don't know that I'm going to do it again next year. Um, I was, extremely happy for the opportunity this year um albeit you know crazy circumstances um i think if 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 we have to do it again in 21 uh 21 the way we did it in 20 uh i probably won't do it um but it was a really really cool experience and i learned a lot of things you know i've kind of got this laid back country you know, vibe to my voice and it doesn't all, you know, sometimes <laughs> listening to myself, sometimes it kind of comes across as me being stoned and that's, that's not <laughs> the way it is in any way, shape or form. You know, it's just the way I talk, you know, me as well as I do. So I have to kind of amp it up a little bit and, and, and whatnot. And I learned a lot of that from, from Bukshiambi and, and, uh, you know, so a lot of, a lot of cool lessons this year, but, uh, I don't know, you know, what the future holds as far as, um, you know, a broadcaster, but I know that I've got a year under my belt and I'm going to get better. And, you know, if I do choose to go forward with it, whether it's on ESPN or, or regionally here in Atlanta, you know, I'll, I'll be a lot better because of the because of, you know, what I endured last year. Well, very cool. And, uh, Chip, this is what we do at the end of all the Boone podcasts. We allow the fans uh, to ask you a couple questions, and we bring in Big Dan Levy to do the asking. Danny. Hi, Jibber. <laughs> oh, goodness. Hey. How Here are you, is. Jibber? <laughs> Well, to be honest, actually, this might be the first time that Brett actually asked most of the questions I was going to ask. Definitely the Shea one, because you weren't the first one on here to actually say they named a child after Shea Stadium. So I guess the question I have for you would be two pretty easy ones. One, you're one of the few people that have been able to go from baseball career to television career and actually be pretty seamless. You've been pretty good at it. Was that something that you were uh, just always good at being a broadcaster? Did you have to work on it, get coached up? How did that, uh, how did that transition go? Cause you're actually really good on TV. 
I've always had people tell me that I'm really good at getting my point across about hitting. And people have asked me, why don't you become a hitting coach and, and whatnot? I'm just not really ready to kind of jump back in uniform and and really spend that kind of time uh, away from my family, you know, doing the baseball thing again. So being able to do television and broadcast is something that is kind of a, an extension of being a coach. And I think really being able to um, relate to the audience, the, 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 the audience that is watching that night, what I'm seeing in a pitcher. Okay. Maybe he's tipping a pitch. Maybe he's not varying his uh, delivery. Maybe he's not, he doesn't have a big enough um, separation between fastball and off speed pitch. Those are all things that I can, that I used to impart on hitters, you know, as a, as a hitting coach or as somebody who was tutoring a younger player that now I can impart upon everybody who's watching the actual broadcast. So there is a way to get it across. And I think I'm, you know, I still got a lot to learn, but um, got a lot of positive feedback from, from some of the things that I can give you uh, inside the mind of a, of a hitter who's standing 60 feet, six inches away from somebody who's throwing 95 to hundred miles an hour. Pitcher that gave you the most nightmares. Was there one pitcher that you ever went up against and went, I really don't feel like pitch, playing against this guy? Oof. Um, you know, I could, I could sit here and say, you know, Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling, um, Roger Clemens. I mean, I had decent numbers against – most of those guys, here's one of those guys that's kind of off the radar. And I know Booney can attest to this guy because he was six foot four. He was 225, 30 pounds. He was mean as a snake. He was elbows, kneecaps coming at you, and just a bunch of filth. Kevin Brown. All right. <laughs> this guy. That's a heavy sinker. He, he could throw he could throw four seamer at ninety six, ninety seven. He could throw two a turbo two sink two seamer at, you know, ninety three, ninety four, had a little cutter, had split, and I mean, he was not out there trying to make any friends. It didn't matter how much I watched film on him. It was just one of those things where you try and scratch out a hit against him. If you went one for four, you were happy. You were and if you scratched out a one for three with a walk, you went home and slept really good that night. And was there one that was your absolute favorite? One that you knew you actually had that guy, no matter what he did. Was Come on, one, Dan. We don't answer questions like that. Was there one picture that you're like, uh, this is the, this is the guy that I know all of his tells. Who is the favorite one? Uh, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm going to say this guy because he's a friend of mine and, and I love him to death. We've, we've been hunting quite a few times together. He's a friend of the family, Shane Reynolds. All right. He was the number one there in Houston for a while. And um, he actually came to the Braves in the 2000s and pitched with us 
um, for a year or two. And he was a guy who tipped every pitch. And Booney will tell you that, that the guy I like hitting off shade as well. Every pitch are, are his favorite pitchers, right? Mine too. All right. So Shane, he tipped every pitch. I think I hit seven or eight bombs off him. You know, in, in my career, I you know I'm sure I hit over 300 against him. But when he came over, he he walks over to my locker and he introduces himself and he says, "Hey, I'm Shane Reynolds." I said, "Hi, I'm Trevor Jones. You're tipping every pitch." And, <laughs> and you know, this is a, this this is a guy who has been in the league for you know 10 plus years, 12 years, you know, and it was like. It was like I had shot his dog, you know. I mean, he was he was crushed, and I took him into the film room and I showed him every little thing that he was doing, and he sat there with his mouth open for 15 minutes in awe of the fact that he had been tipping his pitches for the last decade, you know. And I mean, Shane Reynolds was a really good pitcher. He had a hell of a career. Shane, he was a tough pitcher. Good fastball, big hook, really good split. But <laughs> I took him in there, and I'll be danged if he didn't win like 14 or 15 games for us that year, kind of on the downside of his career because he wasn't tipping anymore. And uh, you'd be surprised how many how many guys through the years that that we had the the lowdown on because they were wiggling a finger or wiggling their glove or fanning their glove on their change up that, uh, that we knew what pitches were coming. Well, that's all fantastic. Chipper Jones. We want to thank you for coming on this show. If you want to follow Chipper Jones, he's on Twitter at real CJ 10. You have a million followers. Congratulations on that. That's even more amazing at some point. Um, is there any other, do you still do the, do you still do the Cheer show up, today? Dan. I know I'm working on it. I only have my 1,500 lowly followers. Do you still have the Chardonnay, by the way, the Chipper Jones Chardonnay or the the wine? No, the Chardonnay and the wine has gone by the wayside. Oh. I actually joined with a company out of Gatlinburg, Tennessee, called Sugarland Shine. Ooh. It is a moonshine company that is off the charts. You guys got to they they make a uh, Chipper Jones. Sweet tea, Southern sweet tea. They have a Cole Swindell uh, pre-show punch. They have quite a few celebrities. They're going to start uh, uh, backing uh, Major League Baseball. They are the official moonshine of the Atlanta Braves. They are the official moonshine of NASCAR, which is, I mean, can you believe that a bunch of NASCAR people would be wanting to back <laughs> moonshiners? I mean, really? Um, so it, it, it's a really cool brand that I'm excited to be behind. And uh, obviously living here in the South, moonshine's a big deal. Well, I'll be expecting that as a Christmas present, sir. That sounds about right to me. We want to thank Chipper Jones for coming on the show again. You can follow him on Twitter at RealCJ10 on Twitter again. Awesome job. Thanks for coming on for uh, the Silver Slugger. 
the Golden Glover, the all-star, Brett Boone. We want to thank you guys for jumping on this podcast with us. Again, the shows keep getting bigger and better. Please continue to subscribe, comment, review, and tell all your baseball-loving friends this is where you're going to find and hear all the stories you wish you could have always heard and pretty much throughout your entire baseball lives because you guys are sharing things that me as a fan only wish I knew about earlier. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing with all your friends. My name is Dan Levy. We'll do it again soon. Later, everybody.